great to can you hear me david uh great to be with yep. you again D david and i have spent I can. wonderful uh as we usually do david and i have spent wonderful hours together talking about this ahead of time and of course we david if i had to give you a member we, i think we identified this at least a month or more ago but i'm i wanted to just say up front I, i'm going to defer to the great david kelly tonight this is philosophy this is a virtue this is his area but I just wanted to give you the background as to where the how this came up, because it was little old me as a political economist who said to David Kelly one night, what about pride in the objectivist uh, seven uh, seven virtues? And and in a self-confessional, I said something like, why is it seventh? Why is it really? Why is it sitting there at the end? And why did she say one time it's a sum of all the virtues? And I knew this was my problem, not anybody else's. But I said something I think a lot of objectivists might also say, which is something like, is this really a virtue in the sense of it actively commends us to do something in order to achieve something, in order to get some value? Versus, and if you look in the literature, it exists, and even in the objectivist literature, the idea that, well, it's a feeling of some kind. It's a result of having achieved stuff, you know, say with the other six virtues. So everyone notices, they'll say, I feel very proud of what I've achieved. And, but notice how that's passive and notice how it's past, it's backward looking. And yet the virtues in objectivism are supposed to be tools, means to an end or a, a set of ends, some value to achieve. And then what is that for pride? If pride is truly a virtue and not just any old virtue, but among the seven Ayn Rand named, let's can we explore this issue of passive versus active? past versus future what are we really trying to achieve here what is pride and you know kind of in the objectivist tradition of let's chew let's chew these concepts and see what we can come up with that might be more um you know uh illuminating than what's already in the literature so with that david i hope you don't mind me giving that little intro because it was really I, I'm responsible for this, uh, <laughs> in many ways, these questions that are floating about, but, and, and David and I kind of set it up as well, as we usually do, what is pride? What does it try to achieve? What does Rand mean by moral ambitiousness? What are the misconceptions and caricatures, you know, the kind of cartoonish caricatures of pride? And then also, you know, as a secondary issue, what is its antithesis? Is it humility? Is it shame? What is it? And uh, what do you think, David? Where do you want to start? You want to start with just what it is or how it plays a role in Rand's ethics? Well, actually, Richard, uh, I, I appreciate that intro because uh, you it's, it's a perfect segue into where I wanted to start. Uh, and that is with the uh, pride uh, as a feeling. Yeah, it's also a virtue, and that's going to be our main topic. But uh, pride is is, you know, we recognize it as a feeling, and it's kind of a pass a reaction to something we've done, and in that sense, passive. But it's also an active as a virtue. It's very active, and I'll um, I'll try. I'll get to that. But 
let's start with the feelings uh, because that's where you know we we you know when we introspect we can um, identify we, we we can get a handle on what we're talking about in the first place and then move from from the, the experience to the uh, moral principles so I, I would say think of a time when you felt proud um, proud over something it could be a promotion at work um, it could be your wedding day when you tied the knot it could be an act of bravery or integrity that you're proud of you know you rose to that occasion what is that feeling I think at the essence at the at the root if you if we could put it into words what the feeling is and feelings are not words but they they reflect underlying um, um, attitudes that we can formulate I'd say the essence is the feeling I did that and it was good you need both things that was good but it was not an accident I did it I get credit for that it was good it was that that aspect could be you know think of other comparable uh, terms like it, it it was good it was earned it was worthy whatever it is and that's it that's i think of the essence of the feeling of pride and as we'll see it's important for the virtue as well now think of a time when you felt humility hmm. okay it might be a case where we well something we would describe as humility you look up to a great hero or achievement and say oh my god that is wonderful i couldn't do that but i admire it hmm. or you did something you wrong and you feel shame about it or you were exposed or something you know something you wanted to keep private was exposed publicly and you just feel shamed um now notice the difference in my two examples the first example is a healthy admiration it doesn't diminish your sense of self or self-esteem it's you know you're looking up to someone but not that doesn't diminish you it elevates you in a way the second example though um, it does diminish your sense of self. It might be as, as severe as a feeling of shame. I feel ashamed of that. Now, it's relevant here to interject. Um, shame and has been studied extensively in, in psychological literature for decades, if not centuries. Yeah. And um, it's often um, compared with uh, guilt. And this difference is morally significant i think and we'll I, I will come back to it in good time but guilt is a feeling of regret about some particular action to parallel what we said about pride it was it was it was the awareness that was wrong and i did it i'm responsible mm. so i feel the guilt but it's over a particular thing particular action shame is a deeper feeling it, it that most psychologists would say involves a more encompassing view of the self it's a feeling about one's whole self i am unworthy i'm no good um and that i think is a clue to the meaning of humility 
But I want to get to the um, the ethics now. Uh, David, David, before you go to the ethics, let me just say that um, as to the feeling, um, we know that objectivism says, well, listen, feelings are not tools of cognition. They also can't be the guide by which we're moral. So pride seems to me very interesting because if you if you look at all the other virtues, we don't often think of feeling. We don't often think of, um, well, I feel I'm feeling honest uh, today. I'm so so glad I'm feeling <laughs> honest. I'm feeling I'm feeling integrity today. It, pride is so interesting because you do feel it. But I, what I just wanted to say to the audience, one of the interesting things about what you just said, David, is consistent with the objectivist view that feelings come from our more our intellectual premises, our ideas. You took each feeling, you took those examples, and then you induced what must have been true for you to actually feel that. And that is your pathway. I can tell you're going there. That is your pathway to saying, okay, now let's see why it's a virtue. Because you name things like, I got a promotion at work. I found the love of my life. I'm in a wedding or I act of heroism or something. I was thinking of something like, well, counter examples would be, I just won the lottery. Why does no one say I'm proud I won the lottery? Because they know it's random. They know that, yes, they did buy the tickets, so they have some agency. But it lacks the idea of pride because you didn't do it. And I really like that, David, because in both cases, you're you're inducing where we get this. You say, well, why would I feel? I feel pride because I did that. Not just that, I authored it. Um, and I get credit for it. By the way, every time I hear credit, I think of the end of movies where they roll the what? <laughs> yeah. they, roll, they roll the credits. Why do they do that? They're honoring the people who made the movie. I don't like the fact that actually that credits have become inflated over the years. If you look at a 1940 movie, the credits have like 17 people. And today it has seventeen. It has seventeen hundred people. That's a that's a separate issue. But you know what I'm saying, David. The method by which you're trying to infer what pride is, and and recognizing this feeling, but then moving to okay, let's get to the issue, which is why is it a virtue? I like the method you used, because you're not you're acknowledging it is a feeling. But let's under this is a way to introspect and ask people why do you feel that way. And why is it genuine in some cases or not really genuine in others? Anyway, I just wanted to notice that. Well, thank you, Richard. I, that's exactly why I'm starting here, because we all have experience. We all, you know, are, live our lives and we have the feelings we do. And pride, humility, shame, guilt are, are things that most people are familiar with. Ethics is more abstract, but it's... Um, in a way, it's important because it it takes the underlying um, beliefs that underlie emotions and are expressed in the form, in emotional form, um, but also isolates them and asks, are they true? Are they false? What, what are those beliefs? Um, and so let's articulate them. And that is the great, I think, uh, advantage of uh, ethics and of philosophy in general, but of ethics in this case in particular. So, um, but I want, let, let me move on. They, you know, the terms pride and humility, uh, 
name feelings, as I was saying, but they also name character traits. They oh. name practices of that have moral significance, and that is um, our chief topic. So historically, um, many ethical codes have condemned pride as a deadly sin oh. and it espoused humility as a virtue. This is particularly true in religious moral codes. Um, I'm most familiar with Christianity and to a lesser extent with uh, Islam, but I, I think it's generally true. Humility is, uh, in Christianity anyway, and I think in Islam as well, uh, humility is, a, is the quote unquote recognition of that one is sinful, one's fallen nature, and one's inferiority to God. Um, I could give you many quotes. Uh, I'll just I'll give one that is one of the starkest things I've ever found. This is from St. Bernard writing in uh, uh, the 11th century. <clears throat> uh, uh, sorry, 12th century. Uh, in an often quoted statement, he said, humility is a virtue by which a man, knowing himself as he truly is, abases himself. Mm. And wow. on the other hand, pride is regarded as sinful uh, the, because it is the view of oneself as adequate, competent, worthy, and therefore not needing God. Not, you know, the proper view is you are lowly because you are infinitely inferior to God and mm -hmm. dependent on him for any good that you do. Um, there was a modern... Uh, one of one of the things I used to use when I taught ethics was uh, a book by by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. This was oh, in right. around 1950 or so. Yeah, and um, he would said that. Um, uh, well, the 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 utmost pride, the essential vice is um, is pride. But I'll I, I can I can go into that more if, if people want, but. I also want to say that, uh, like many other religious uh, parts of religious morality, <clears throat> this view of pride and humility has been secularized. Um, yeah, altruism has been secularized too. You know, you know, you hear invocations that it's really good to help others and really bad to be selfish, and that's coming from people who you know don't have a religious bone in their body, but it's just part of the it, that ethic. Uh, ultimately uh, religious ethic has been secularized in various ways. Um, I mean, you can see this very easily, the shorthand way of seeing it is um, in standard definitions, dictionaries typically provide, define humility in contrast with uh, pride and arrogance. Humility is the absence of pride and arrogance mm. and which are in turn, pride is conceived as excessive self-regard Mm. A sense of superiority, humility involves meekness, modesty, deference, lowly rank, awareness of one's failings, a sense of inferiority. Um, I can give you examples from many di 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 dictionaries, but that is the sum that you find if you look in uh, dictionaries. Now, that's not religious. It's just a definition of a term that yeah. is widely embraced in secular um, yeah. circles. 
Yeah. Now, okay, on to the objectivist view. Objectivism rejects this view of uh, humility and pride completely, both the religious and the secular versions. For objectivism, pride is a major virtue and humility is a moral failing of vice. So let me give you a quick summary, a quick cook's tour, so to speak, of uh, the objectivist view developed by Ayn Rand and developed by others um, of pride, starting with pride. David, I just want to interject quickly. Not just not a virtue, a vice. She's saying humility is not just, you know, I reject it as one of the virtues. She's going the other way and saying it is vicious to. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to, I just wanted to emphasize that. Go ahead. That's right. Uh, thank you, Richard. That's a good, that's a very good point, And it's essential. Uh, humility is a vice, not a virtue. Uh, so what is pride? I'm going to give you the definition that I developed with William Thomas in our work, The Logical Structure of Objectivism. The definition is pride is a commitment to achieve self-esteem by taking credit and responsibility for acting on one's own judgment in accordance with moral principles. Now, that's a lot. So let's unpack it uh, step by step. First of all, pride is a virtue. And like all other virtues, it is a means to an end. It's a means to achieving some value. In the, in the case of pride, the end, the value it aims at is self-esteem. That is a value. Why? Well, first of all, what is it? And why is it such a value? I'm going to quote from Nathaniel Brandon, the psychologist, uh, who says self-esteem is the disposition to experience oneself as competent to cope with the basic challenges of life and as worthy of life. So those two elements, which Rand also cited in, um, in her work, uh, statements about pride, or self-esteem, confidence to cope with the challenges of life and worthiness of happiness. We need self-esteem to have a full sense of ourselves as ends in ourselves. People without self-esteem cannot fully value themselves as the object of their actions and in seeking the, their best life Pride is a means of establishing self-esteem because self-esteem has to be earned. It doesn't come automatically. We're not born with it. It doesn't come uh, naturally in from anything except ultimately our own actions and commitment to achieving it. It has to be earned and pride is the commitment to earn it. How? By acting morally, by practicing rationality, integrity, justice or other people and the other virtues, uh, the other more more principles that are part of a rational egoism, egoistic ethic. In this way, uh, as Rand said, pride is the sum of the virtues. Uh, I, I think what she meant is that it's we, there are certain virtues that we can derive as necessary to promote a, a human life as a rational animal, as a, as a human being. And 
Those include rationality, integrity, honesty, and, and a number of others. Pride is the overriding or some of those that when you live in accordance with those principles, or when you, first of all, you commit to living in accordance with those principles, then you um, are um, earning the self-esteem, which you can only earn by acting in a productive manner, a manner that is um, leads to a sense of self-worth and confidence. Now, one thing that's interesting um, is that I think pride has two, two different focal points, looking backward and looking forward in time. Pride in what's past means taking credit for one's specific achievements and pausing to recognize oneself with, I did it, like I was saying before, when you feel pride, I feel I did it and this is good. That is truly the essence of pride as a recognition of what you have achieved. It means taking credit at for, um, for what you have done as a self-made being for one's accomplishments, but also very importantly for one's character. Character is the basis of self-esteem. It's what you take pride in when you take pride in yourself, in your in your very being, in who you are, um, over and above, and uh, you know any particular achievements or any particular um, you know wins or you know even even something as important as a wedding or um, uh, an act of bravery. Those happen at a moment, but. Um, Pride is a commitment to, to acting consistently or to taking credit for those moments as reflections of who you are. So that's looking backward. Looking forward, pride is a commitment to continually seeking to act in that in accordance with your principles or your moral principles. Seeking your best life, your best self by continuing to practice those virtues. This is what Rand called moral ambitiousness. To use it as a kind of definition or shorthand for, for um, what self-esteem is, I, I, in my definition, I would add that that's a forward-looking perspective. You're more ambitious for being something, creating something, doing something. Yeah. But um, I think the past take uh, focus of taking credit people who, who never take credit who just kill themselves and maybe achieve great things but never stop and say that was good and i did it are missing something and not not fully able to appreciate the self that they've created uh or this what they're recognizing and i david, think rich, rich, david if i might uh before we it sounds like you're going to go into moral ambitiousness, which is so, so important, so unique, I think, to Rand. Before we do, though, you said something very interesting. just wanted to ask you, David, and um, for the audience, I didn't ask this of David privately, so I don't, I don't want to blindside you here, David. Um, is, as an epistemologist, put your epistemologist hat on, is this okay. idea of, is this idea of looking backward? and kind of inventorying that's not a word but ha gathering an inventory of things you've done is that really important it sounds like it is so this is a rhetorical a little bit 
it's 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 interesting because no one goes back and says, "Let's look at all the ways I've been just, or independent, or productive." And maybe we do do that, but it seems like in pride, it's really important to look back and say, "When have I been proud, and why?" And that as a uh, re, as a basis for saying, "I know how to do this in the future now," because I've seen the cause and effect in the past. These two aspects of pride, David, looking back, taking credit, then looking forward, taking responsibility. The connection between the two is so fascinating because it's almost like if you have no examples in your history, and everyone has some examples of pride, you're kind of saying you need an inductive approach to this. You need to start with recognizing what you've done and then saying, man, I'd like to do that a lot of times. How can I proliferate that feeling by looking in the future and treating it as a virtue? I'm speaking weirdly here, but you understand my question? I, I do, yeah, uh, uh, and it's true. You know, I, just as I don't remember what I had for breakfast on September uh, 25th, you know, 1973, um, I don't remember all the things I did that were, um, I would consider to be, you know, reflective of my character. But, you know, it, there is a, there's, you know, all the virtues, all the values that we seek mm. um, are oriented toward life. And by life, we mean the entire extent of a human being's life. So you are at a given moment in your life, a given point in time, um, and when we're younger, we're focuses mainly on the future. Um, hmm. when we get older <laughs> and I can speak from experience here, we think back to, okay, what has my life meant? What is, what has been its meaning? And, uh, did I live up to my standards? And so there's, but it's, it's, it's all one piece. It's, we, we actually have had some discussions um, among the scholars about what I what I call the arc of life, yeah. how how yeah. your sense of life can change as you proceed through a life. But the point is here is that you know the past is 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 maybe past, and the future may not be here yet. But they are both parts of your life, and they're both parts of your consciousness of yourself. The both parts of yourself in a way. So I think, you know, I can think back and say what, what tends to set out looking backwards are the exceptions. Oh my God, I, did I do that? Oh, how, how could I have done that? Or, or, you know, on the positive side, that was really great. Yeah. You know, I, right. Right. So, and don't you notice that it with, with the passing of age and you and I are both getting older that you, essentialize it to the point of, well, I'm really proud of like, you know, like three main things, but it's not going to be, you know, 33 things, although the 33 things yeah. contributed, did contribute the, the, the subsidiary things that we did that we're proud of that led to whatever our career, our major book, our wonderful friends, our wonderful marriage, they, they have tributaries into the stream. But with the passage of time, one of the nice things about the passage of time is you essentialize it and you have to say, I mean, if you said to anybody today, 
Name the three things you're most proud of in your life. That's going to have to be an essentialized answer. That can't not be minutia. And um, uh, anyway, thank you for that, Dan. That's a interesting. Okay, I don't want to stop you. Go ahead. No, that's a good point. And it's it's like you know one of the questions they ask they they ask in some self help and um, mm. uh, therapy sessions is what what do you want said about you at your um, you know, when you pass yeah. away and they have a memorial service or right. uh, what do you write want your, to your tombstone? Yeah. Or write your own obituary. I love, I li- actually like those exercises. Do you, do you, or do you think those are contrived? No, I think they're, 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 they're a way of getting out the essence of yeah, focusing the mind yeah, on what's I, essential. I do. I do too. I think I agree with that. Yeah. Write your own obituary. What do you, not, what do you want to be known for in the sense of second handedness? But what, right. are you, what, are you, what are you doing with your life? And when it ends, and it might end tomorrow, sum it up for me right now. And when people do that, they'll often say, oh, my God, I'm doing the wrong thing right now. I'm wasting my time on something right now, and I need to That's change. right. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead, Dave. That's in a whole other topic we could uh, actually yeah. do on the clubhouse. Yeah. On. yeah. Time yeah. is the currency of life. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So, but let, let me just, uh, on the, the topic of moral ambitiousness, uh, Richard, you made a great point in our conversations that um, the ter- thing about the term ambitiousness, normally that's not used in, in um, regard to self or virtue or, you know, any of these ethical things. It's, it's used to amb- a career ambitions, what you want in your career. Yeah. Or if you're yeah. starting on, on a project, I want to, I want this project to succeed, you know, a new yeah. piece of software or whatever. Right. But what it brings out, and and, it's, and, and I appreciate this more in, you know, from that conversation we had, um, why Rand chose that term, because the self is just as much a product of our actions as any achievement in the world. I love that. And she had this wonderful statement uh, in, in, in Atlas Shrugged somewhere that as man is a being of self-made wealth, so he is a being of self-made soul. Great. And ambition yep. is yep. exactly the right term to use in both contexts. Yep. So and I want to just... And, uh, and, and by the way, Atlas is full of... This is a, t- a total a whole book. Volumes could be written on this, David. Atlas is full of the use of commercial metaphors, gaining, yeah. profiting by, if you go the wrong way, you're morally bankrupt. One of the most fascinating things about Rand is she used, she uses business and financial and commercial terms to, to describe moral virtues and vices. And it's so, it's so uniquely heard. No one has ever done that, but I just wanted to interject that, but go ahead. That's a great point. I never thought of that, Richard. You should write that article <laughs> as an economist. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I, we have a lot of questions uh, that uh, I know Richard is, has been thinking a lot about as well as, as, well as, as I have. But I, I want to just say, hopefully from this overall perspective, it should be clear that from this framework hmm. that pride and self-esteem, what they are not. Hmm. They are not comparative or competitive. That is, I'm 
my self-esteem is a judgment about myself. It is my judgment. It is um, not because I'm better than anyone else or I, if I'm if someone is better than I am, I look up to them and admire them, but it doesn't diminish me. Uh, as I was saying before, if anything, it elevates me by being able to recognize, uh, you know, something ex in the in the world um, that is valuable, and I might well feel gratitude to live in such a world. But um, it's not that I am better than you; it's that I am what I am, and I have acted and built myself around standards that I accept. And all, the only thing that matters is, have I lived up to my own standards? Not that they're subjective. I mean, I have to have good reasons for my standards, but they don't come from other people. And uh, and by the same token, pride is not arrogance or superiority. You know, that's often the definition that we people talk about, you know, we should, you know, be humble or, you know, sometimes humble. Humility is used in a, in a very de detoxified way, if I can put it that way, detoxified from religious uh, abase, self-abasement. Um, to say, well, you know, don't be arrogant. Um, you know, you're just one, one among many people. So, um, and it's, this is usually brought out in business, con in social context, including business. Um, and arrogance is is a, a human failing. I mean, there are there are people who um, have an inflated sense of their uh, their abilities, their their scope of their knowledge, there's the the, the uh, accuracy of their judgment, and we'll get to this in a, a little bit. I think Richard, you wanted to ask about cognitive humility, which I'm I'm going to leave it to you to raise that question if you if you're if you want to do that but yes of course um, arrogance arrogance um is why be arrogant i, I mean i i'm i'm if arrogance just if if it's just another name for proud pride um in the way that howard Rourke, for example was often described by others as arrogant because he didn't care that much of what they thought about him um, well, that's a virtue, but um, if arrogance means lording it over others and um, uh, treating them as inferior, it's, it's, that's not pride. That is a kind of social dependence. Um, and so is being the idea of self-esteem as dependent on others esteeming you. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, which is not the objectivist view. Exactly. I mean, think of the self... Um, some decades ago, anyway, there was a kind of a movement in the in schools, uh, K twelve education. Yeah, uh, we kind of build self esteem, yeah. which which we do by saying, "Oh, everyone's special; they all get stars or whatever," and um, we find a way to make them um, feel good about themselves and their achievements. Not feel good about themselves as individuals or worthy of their own um, self care and 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 and. Um, you know, conviction to learning and improving their lives. No, it's just they feel good because we we praise them. Yeah. Well, so the ration, so the rational Randian, Brandian, I don't want to say Brandian, conception of self-esteem as uh, internal, if you will, earned, 
using man's mind for self-efficacy and self-propulsion was taken over by the altruists who believe that others' perceptions of you are the source of your self-esteem. If so, it's odd, because on the one hand, they said, oh, um, yeah, you've convinced us. Self-esteem is important. How do we do this? We tell the kids they're really valuable, even if they're not. We tell the kids they're they're wonderful and they're, they're snowflakes and no one's like you, even though they're not. It's unearned and they totally miss the point completely. It's so sad, David, you know, because conservatives to this day will mock the uh, self-esteem movement. I think oh, because course, yeah. I think I think because they're predisposed predisposed to thinking pride is a sin and selfishness is evil. But it's so sad that that movement, we we need to recapture that movement, the self-esteem movement, don't we? And say that it's not yeah. otherism, it's not outside, it's not otherism. And you and I talked about the various um, kind of caricatures of pride. And I think we noticed that if you go through them, they almost all entail otherism or what we would call altruism, a, a preoccupation with others. So for example, vanity. It, is pride really vanity? What is vanity? What, yeah. you, what you think of in the eyes of others, that's otherism. That's not objectivism, that's egoism. That's ultra otherism, arrogant, boastful. Why is someone boastful? They're boasting to other people. Yeah. It's the locker room talk, right? But that's otherism. That isn't internal. Bragging, uh, supercilious, haughty. Uh, overconfident and an attitude of superior. Um, almost every case, David, I think you and I found of caricatures or cartoonish conceptions of pride. How interesting that they all seem to uh, boil down to preoccupation with what other people thought of you, which is not objectivism. Right. All of those um, conceptions and descriptions of pride would apply perfectly to Peter Keating in the Fountainhead. Hmm. Who, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who, and the point of the Fountainhead, he, he is he has no self. Hmm. Uh, he's self-conscious enough to realize that at some point and regret it. So he's not the worst case. Um, but still, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's all otherism. It's second-handedness down the road. I mean, I, th I like Brandon in uh, the Six Pillars of Self-Esteem had a nice way of putting it, I think. He said, self-esteem is an intimate experience. It mm. resides in the core of one's being. It is what I think and feel about myself, not what someone else thinks or feels about me. Yeah. I think absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. And, and David, when you, thought, when you, when you talked about um, the virtues are paraphrasing a little bit here so forgive me the virtues are tools or means by which we achieve our values and the three cardinal objectives values are reason purpose the self it should be so obvious to people that pride is one of the virtues by which we gain the self if you will or gain an appreciation of the self or ways to cultivate and enhance and embolden the self um and that's very unconventional that is not a conventional view but I, but 
isn't you also mentioned and she mentions this a couple of times too so how would you rank these david that we're using this virtue we need to be really attentive to this virtue because we're building cultivating expanding our self-esteem which is itself a value a uh but also our moral character but i would throw in a third thing and i wonder what you think of this i don't know something like this is not in the objectivist literature something like a third thing so self-esteem our moral character but number three would be something like i don't know something like fortitude to handle set setbacks fortitude to handle um um hardships I, i'm aware of this because suicide rates are rising among teens rising among vets and I wonder whether some of this is an inability to handle. It's not just, I'm not flourishing. I don't have a sufficient self-esteem. It's, I can handle setbacks. Because I think people think that the proud person and the objectivist and the, is like moving ever forward and onward and upward. And, you know, and, and it's almost like the standard is you shall never fail and you win every victory and you get every promotion. And you know what I mean, David? And that we know that's not yeah. life. We know that's not life, but here's the key. And Rourke was in the quarry, right? She has in the fountainhead. Rourke is in a goddamn quarry blasting rock, which is his, you know, the lowest thing he could be doing, but he's still doing it. And he still expects to be building skyscrapers and be at the top of them, you know, at the end of the movie. So yeah. I, I, a couple of thoughts from you on, what do you think about this idea of, and it's it immunizes you from setbacks or, you know, cratering at the slightest uh, setback because people are seem very fragile today. It's not just that we can't get them to think about being morally ambitious and build and grow and it's that hey you can handle setbacks yeah i think that's a that's a great point richard and um um it's actually one that brandon emphasizes that self-esteem um functions uh partly as an immune system against to carry you through the bad times to fight wow. off the um, psychological down points in life. And, you know, mo most of us have them. And yeah. objectivism, wow. it does not deny that. It's certainly if you read Rand's novels, uh, yeah. think of Dagny after Francisco left her when they were young yeah. lovers. Um, yeah, right. And it took her years to kind of recover and gain her equilibrium. Um, but you know, and and, so, and 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 David, even the hero Galt, not to give away plot spoilers here. You say to yourself, "Well, name one Ein hero that never has setbacks." They might say Galt. Really, Galt had to quit yeah. the 20th century motor company. Whereas, if the if the 20th century motor company had not been taken over by the Starnes family, right, his, his engine would have been used, exalted, you know, heralded. It, that's a that was a real setback that's why he quit yeah not to mention living in a garret for 12 years <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in right. a city part of manhattan anyway yeah, yeah. Right. so um no that's a very good point and i think um just to finish up I, I, i'll i'll 
make just a note about, um, <clears throat> I think it's obvious from what we've been talking about, that humility is not something to seek or value or practice. Mm. Um, I would say the opposite of pride as a feeling is shame. Mm. But humility is the opposite of pride as a virtue. Wow. And I want to read something from Rand, which I think is very illuminating uh, in this context. It's from the Ayn Rand letter um, called the, the article is called Moral Inflation Part Two. She says self-abasement is the antithesis of morality and self-abasement is the essence of the practice of humility. If a man has acted immorally but regrets it and wants to atone for it, it is not self-abasement that prompts him, but some rem remnant of love for moral values. And it is not self-abasement that he expresses, but a longing to regain his self-esteem. Humility is not a recognition of one's failings, but a rejection of morality. I am no good is a statement that may be uttered only in the past tense. To say, I am no good, is to declare, and I never intend to be any better. <laughs> Which is the opposite of moral ambitiousness. Exactly. It's like so, a person, it's a person in the, you know, repetitive motion job, and and he's whining and complaining, and I'm like, I'm bored, and uh, I'm alienated, and, and Marx told me, but, and you say, well, why don't you seek a promotion? Why don't you build a career? Oh, I don't really want to. It's not really my. I love that, David. When we talk privately, I pose this question to you, and and you know, like, is the antithesis of pride, humility, or shame? This is brilliant. I never thought of it as well. You've already talked about it has a feeling component, but also a virtue component, and humility really is at the antithesis because it's on the level of virtue versus vice. Right, where, it's a practice. Yeah, I love that. And and we do feel shame sometimes. And you're saying that's the feeling, that's the opposite of feeling proud. I love that, David. That's very, my gosh, that's very illuminating. Before we, oh, go, to before we go to questions, I did want to bring up, you and I know a lot of thinkers over the years. This is epistemology, but I think it relates to pride. They, they say, okay, you're not infallible. You're not omniscient, omniscient. You need to practice cognitive humility. I, I bring it up only because we are talking about pride versus humility. But what's, what's interesting about, and they, this is their phrase, not ours. You know that, David. What do they mean by cognitive humility? And does it even, is this even tangentially related to moral humility? It's related etymologically, and um, in 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 the history of, of moral thinking, um, I think it's it's a completely you know bogus concept um, mm. because cognitive humility means recognizing. I mean, the typical formulation of it as a you know a a, a, a practice that would be good if more people practiced it. Of recognizing the limits of your knowledge, recognizing that you are fallible, um, that other people may have ideas that are um, worth incorporating into your thinking, 
Yeah. Um, if they, if they you know, make sense and so on and so forth. So it's against cognitive arrogance, like, and which is based on an implicit assumption, I'm omniscient or I'm infallible. Well, any, you know, we epistemologically, it's, it's a basic aspect of certainly the objectivist epistemology, but I would say of, of any um, uh, a coherent theory of knowledge, of course we are not omniscient and we are not infallible. We're capable of making mistakes. That's why we need epistemology in the first place to um, distinguish between good arguments and bad arguments, uh, true conclusions and false ones. But, um, and that's, so the proper name for this is objectivity. I'm being objective. Objective in, in recognizing that reality is what it is. And I can be objective only if I'm open to all evidence, including the, the, um, uh, the possibility that I have overlooked something or have made a mistake in reasoning. That's objectivity. To call it humility um, is, says in effect, well, we're not arrogant, so we have to be a little skeptical. We're not omniscient, so we have to be a little skeptical. Um, healthy dose of skepticism, you know, toward ourselves is the proper view. No, it's just, it's one of those false dichotomies um, that it's like in ethics, being arrogant or being humble, um, being yeah. overbearing toward others or being meek and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, 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 obedient. Yeah, no. so 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 the, the the language we hear things like um, "Don't be so sure of yourself," or "Why why you're taking things too seriously?" The the too seriously thing is very common among parents. Will say that to kids. You're you're taking yourself too seriously. Uh, um, you know that, Dave. Be you know be humble, but 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 also you know politically um hayek and others hayek's last book was called um the fatal conceit so right. conceit, conceit is another word for you know caricaturing uh confidence or pride interestingly the fatal conceit according to hayek was an undue confidence in the power of reason and his theory was an a plausible theory, actually, but think of this. His theory was the more certain we are, the more likely we're going to be dictators. If you're so sure of yourself, uh, you're going to be inclined to tell people what to do, to lord over them, to mandate, dictate, decree to them. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so Hayek, to his, Hayek, to his credit, being a liberal, wanting freedom, his view was the free society should be based on the idea that nobody knows anything. And if nobody knows anything, then not even the central planners can be in charge. It is such a ridiculous, you know, talk about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to undermine human reason so, so that no crazy man like Hitler can pretend that he knows everything. It's so, you know, in the objectivist world, it's so bad because... Uh, as you say, we should be defending objectivity and not cognitive humility. And and the cognitively, not just the cognitively, but maybe the psychologically 
uh, humble person, David, I'm really worried about is a sh- what, what I would today call sheeple, uh, people w- willing to be submissive, <laughs> obsequious, uh, willing to do their duty, you know, to serve the group or serve the state. And I, I don't want to bring in motives, but I really wonder about someone who says, be humble, question yourself, uh, defer to uh, the knowledge of others. It it sounds like it's contributing to the authoritarian, unfree society. Well, it can easily do so. Um, I mean, in regard to Hayek, I I, I hate that book, The Fatal Conceit, (laughs) but um, it just gets my gall every time I look at some parts of it. But anyway, um, but the argument there is quite common. A lot of yeah. uh, liberty-leaning people say that, you know, yeah. if you're not a skeptic, you can't be a libertarian because yeah. if you think you know right. something, then right. you can dictate it uh, right. to everyone else. Very common view. Very common view. That's one but, of the ways we differentiate ourselves. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but there's also, you know, totalitarian regimes have, you know, in the 20th century, we have a vast... Um, laboratory of Mm. different ways to um, undermine human pride or Mm. individual pride and self-esteem and make them um, all the more ready for a leader. I think, you know, if you, again, in the fountainhead in in the last second or the, uh, where Dewey is confessing to Peter Keating what he's after and how oh, he yeah. goes after it, all right. the ways of tearing down yeah. the independent man. Right, right. Uh, and I, I, that was so brilliant um, as a, you know, from an author who came from a totalitarian society yeah, and was right. witnessing um, yep. a movement in that direction in America at the time. It was just, that's fabulous. But that's, that gets, that, that you know, it, it exemplifies your point that um, there is a strong connection between individualism and freedom on the one hand and, and on the other side, sheepishness, uh, lack of self-esteem, humility, and um, looking for a leader or a father figure or some authoritarian to you know, tell you what to do. David, I know you've written a lot about uh, free will and volition. You've lectured on it. Uh, we talked about this offline, so to speak. What role does that play? Because if determinism is dominant in the culture, that you have no agency, you are buffeted by uh, forces beyond your control. You didn't choose your parents. You had the luck of the draw, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't that undermine pride in the sense of, well, you can't take credit if you're not, if you don't have agency. Is that, does that play a role at all or is that kind of tangential to this? Well, I think it's an important part of the context of what we're talking about of in, in understanding pride uh, as a virtue and self-esteem as a value. Um, the importance of taking credit should be objective. Uh, mm. I don't take credit for my parents. Um, yeah, right. There's a whole metaphysical puzzle about whether that even makes sense. But anyway, uh, I don't take credit for the fact that they yeah. um, were right. able to provide me with a good education. Yeah. Uh, 
they supported, you know, me through my youth and, um, you know, I, like, like anyone else, you know, I had, there were good things about my parents and things I, I fought, fought against at the time, but overall, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to be in America. I'm very lucky to live at that time I do when, um, and to have lived through, you know, the digital revolution so that now I work on, um, a word processor instead of a manual typewriter. And just one thing after another that I'm grateful for that I didn't, and gratitude, I think, is partly involves the awareness that I'm benefiting from things that I do not take credit for personally. Mm -hmm. So you have yeah. to keep that context and be, yeah. be clear. I'm taking credit, you know, so if I'm, you know, if I'm a rich, uh, rich person because I'm an heir of someone who made a ton of money, yeah, um, I, I can't take pride in my wealth or, you know, say I'm, you know, one of the higher class people because okay, I, I can afford a nice tux and all these glittery parties. Uh, no, uh, you didn't make that money. But um, you take pride in the things that you are have achieved and what you've done with what you were given. Um, so I think that's important, but you can't lose sight of you can't it's not all what you were given i mean take any yeah. any yeah. any person you know there are a lot of uh, worthless errors um yes yeah i i'm a very i love that answer i'm very super conscious of this david not only because i'm in the same position you are any middle class or upper middle class american who knows their history feels the same word you do and i know we don't think things are random everything is caused but I say the same thing every day. God damn, am I lucky? I was born in America in 1959. What the hell? But you can wreck it. You can throw it away. I say yeah. to I say to and I say to students at the very prestigious university I teach at because I know where they came from. <laughs> I say to them, "You think you're privileged? Okay, but think of all the classmates who are not here and they're in the gutter, or they're in a grave because they made bad choices." but you didn't and you're here and you took your endowment. And here's what's so wonderful about pride. You take this endowment from your parents or whatever. You don't say you earned that, but you're given a platform and a, and a new launching pad, so to speak. But that's what civilization is, right? We're supposed to enjoy the hand downs of prior achievements and then go from there, build on the shoulders of, heroes right david and and that you can properly take credit for and if anything you might say to people you are really in a position to achieve something because you have this platform so what are you going to do about it what what path are you going to carve out what are you going to do it's your responsibility stop feeling guilty allegedly because yeah. you were given this privilege you're not obligated either you don't have to give anything back to society you don't have to do this but for your own selfish purposes, go do something. Because look at all these assets you have. That's kind of the message I send. It's a little, what, what do you think? I think that's great. I, I hope your students are listening and um, <laughs> appreciating what you're telling them. <laughs> great. Well, we have half an hour. You want to leave the last half hour to questions, David? Or do you want to I, bring, you, want, you have some other points you want to make? No, I'm fine. Uh, let's, uh, 
you know, our our back and forth, you you, you and me, Richard, uh, is is brought out a lot of point, additional points and good points. But uh, let's open it up to questions for okay. people. Okay, yeah, Scott, it's take been it over. A great session, uh, Tom. Tom, thanks for joining us. Do you have a question? Uh, yes, I do, and thank you for the uh, meeting. Uh, here's a question that I have. Uh, would you say that? Uh, now, this concerns both virtue and vices. Uh, would you say that uh, it's a character trait, and if it is a character trait, it's derived from uh, a principle uh, which comes from and is productive of an awareness of the world? And if so, isn't that not just something that you're aware of when you're walking around in the world? And, and then uh, if someone has the, uh, the character trait, the principle, then they will see the world and interpret it according to those principles. Uh, so where do the, uh, those principles come from? That's my, my main question, uh, because if we say that we start out tabula rasa, um, I like to know uh, how someone can start out not having the virtue toward becoming a virtue, uh, virtuous, um presumably from from inductive evidence and so on uh, but but that's the developmental process that i'm i'm wondering about i'll take a crack at that and richard um, you know i'm sure you have a, a, a you know additional perspective but i i think we acquire the principles um inductively and i i in 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 epistemological sense, it's inductive, but not because the child growing up is um, a mini scientist. It's because he's living a life and observing certain things. I mean, you just look at the um, look at a baby's face when the, or a toddler or an infant, whatever, uh, is able to do something or learn something. Um, just the way their their eyes light up. It feels good to understand. It feels, and that's the beginning of an appreciation of why rationality is so important. And it builds um, successfully uh, and develops from the germ of a feeling, maybe, to uh, hopefully a, a, a full explicit recognition that reason is, is a good thing. That's how we succeed. And same with, you know. Someone with honesty uh, as a virtue. Honesty is a kind of an ancillary of rationality. It means not faking the truth. Well, there are a lot of temptations to be dishonest, and um, it, you know, part of uh, parental teaching uh, is hopefully no, don't lie. You, it's not. Ultimately, I mean, the parents should be teaching. It's not in your self-interest. You don't actually gain from a lie. You will suffer uh, in your in your own self, uh, your your self-confidence, but also you'll be caught. Almost certainly, you're not that smart. <laughs> oh no, I take I take back the last sentence. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you will be caught. So I mean, you learn these things inductively from experience. Um, but this is a different process from what we'd consider scientific induction, where you actually do experiments and have controlled 
um, controlled studies, you know, that's not how we learn ethical principles. That's not how philosophy in general works, really. Uh, what we're doing is articulating truths that are based on the world. But I will say this, every virtue, um, we, def you know, Rand, Rand uh, introduced all the virtues in, when, in Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged by saying, X is the recognition that there's some fact of reality that we recognize that's cognitive and that we adopt and act by that's a moral commitment um but understanding that fact is what um moral development is about and i i, I think it's as i was saying it happens inductively tom i think it's a great question and the since we do believe in tabula rasa the question is how does the canvas get filled i like david's answer inductively is the best way but as I introspect as to being a kid and being a parent, I think it starts, this is this will sound weird, but I think it starts dogmatically. In other words, you, you hear from your parents or teachers or preachers, eat your vegetables or uh, share your toys or use your words, use your manners. Don't hit your sister. Uh, you must love grandma. Uh, here are the 10 commandments. You, you, we've all heard this, right? So what's interesting, though, is they begin as dogma. Okay, whatever. Mom said so. But yes, the truly moral person over time, and they become adolescents and then teenagers, checks those dogmas and say, if they're really independent and so on, is that true or not? Should I really share things? Is this really all about communism? <laughs> Are the Ten Commandments... George Carlin famously reduced the Ten Commandments down to two. Be honest and don't cheat on your wife or something like that. It's a hilarious skit, at which you should uh, look up. So I agree with you, David, but also Tom asked something about the world. I think there's something about provincialism and cosmopolitanism that's interesting as well. So just as you grow up out of your family household and learn a broader world, you know, at the public school or in the broader, the same thing, you get beyond America, you travel abroad and you say, wow, Wow, people live differently in wildly different ethical codes, and I'm learning something here. I'm learning what's good or evil, but I have a broader context of knowledge. I've moved beyond my parents' house to my home, you know, to my uh, hometown, to broader. Yeah, that's how we learn. And that's, I think, more the reason why we need an ethical code. There's so much detail. There's so much uh, information out there. How do you possibly, um, process it, assort it and figure out what's the right way to live? That's what a moral code's for and reason, obviously. Reason. Great. Uh, Clark. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really, really enjoying this and I hope you guys continue doing, um, these sessions together um not that the parts each individually are, are great but somehow the sum of the parts when y'all get together like this uh, more than one scholar in one of these rooms it seems to be even better so let's um here's hoping that you guys continue to do this um i have kind of a a tangential question uh because i don't really think about these matters uh all that much the way you guys do and and of course you've made me this last hour think of these things but but what do you what do you guys think about the fact that so many 
people today, you know, the Bill Gateses, these highly productive, creative people, they're just not proud of, of all their accomplishments until they go off and like Gates and create a foundation, which essentially, essentially, you know, the Gates Foundation, uh, you know, promotes very woke social justice kinds of ideas. And they're proud of that. They're very proud of all the things that would essentially tear down Western civilization. But for some reason, and again, I, I know a lot of this is compartmentalization. You know, they, you know, during during his career, someone like Bill Gates obviously worked many, many hours and highly creative, highly productive. And, you know, now I'm at the point he's older now. He doesn't do that. I wish he'd go back to producing and creating. Uh, but but it's like he he can't feel proud of that. He's got to compartmentalize because, again, you know, he, he went to Harvard. I think he dropped out of Harvard, but, uh, you know, but but in any in any event, you know, there's I, I know millions of, of, of lesser, you know, people, not billionaires, but, you know, very creative, productive people who are the same. They just can't feel pride uh, or you know, they can't be, feel proud of their productive, creative achievements. But they can they can feel proud of, of all the woke things they do in life. So I know it's off on a tangent to some extent, but but what do you guys think of that? David, you want to go first? Uh, oh, sure. I, okay. This is this is uh, something that um, great, great question annoys me no <laughs> end. Uh, it has for decades, and I've written about it. It's uh, I think ultimately it comes. It, it reduces to a kind of mind-body dichotomy that um, business is lowly, materialistic, it's selfish, um, it's all about profit. And whereas higher things regarded as higher, like political leadership or philanthropy or uh, nonprofit work, um, by the very nature of the term nonprofit, it's okay, you're exempt from uh, that, that materialistic accusation. and you know, I and I remember writing something about Ted Turner back in the day. You know, what he did in the '70s in creating CNN created much more value than he ever will create with the millions that he gives away. And um, but it's it just in terms of value, it makes no sense. But I think it's it's a combination of this anti-materialism that we still, we inherited from religion, like so many other things, but it's been secularized, but still is, is, is a factor that there are higher versus lower professions, the helping professions, teachers, psychologists, doctors, that they're the good guys because they're um, engaged in a noble profession that is aimed at helping others, whereas business people are all about money and uh, profit. And so that, and, you know, that's, that's money is just, you know, material and the pursuit of it is selfish. So um, it's a combination of anti-self and, you know, anti-selfishness and anti-materialism. And it is people who are, you know, don't follow those principles in their actual productive life as they, as they wouldn't be successful if they did. Um, but they don't think that they don't look at the, what they did to, to create the companies or make all the money they did. They don't see it in moral terms. Morality is all about giving. And um, so anyway, 
I hear Clark, you. Clark, that's a great question, and I feel the same thing David does, and that David really nailed the answer. That That is it, the, the mind-body split and business is low and crude. The, the examples you named, business people are, uh, yes. I, I happen to think, I can't imagine, I know they're mixed, everyone's mixed philosophically uh, among top CEOs and commercial people, but I have a hard time believing while they're building the wealth and building their enterprises, these, if you know their biographies, um, uh, Steve Jobs and others, and even Warren Buffett and others who lean left, in their actual biographies, they are prideful. Uh, they're just not publicly so, possibly because they've been religious. They're religious. So they're told this is a sin. So don't say it. Don't say the real thing out loud, so to speak. Don't say the truth out loud. But I, you know, just backing into inferring their achievements, it's hard to believe they would not have the fuel over many decades of, you know, a kind of quiet internal pride. And that's what pride is anyway. It's not boasting. We already said that, right? That that's how they built their careers. But you're absolutely right, Clark. If they have this ethic that says, well, pride is really a sin. They're going to spend the latter half of their life giving it away, engaged in what's called philanthropy, word for loving humanity. What, you weren't loving humanity when you were building your business, but only when you're giving away your wealth? It's ridiculous. But even back as far as Andrew Carnegie, who came up with the concept of the social gospel, how interesting, social gospel, make, yes. a, lot of, make, make a lot of money, but then give it away, give it away. And the giving away part is the moral part. Uh, or the whole phrase of give back something, give back to the community as if businessmen had stole something. Ayn Rand's last uh, lecture, Clark, I think you know, was the sanction of the victim. She basically told business people, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't, um, uh, in a way, slap yourself in the face by apologizing for your success. I would just point out, as a last point, I would just point out, if you look on the positive side, what do you make of this? In the arts and entertainment, not business, although it is business-oriented, in arts and entertainment and sports, they're tied all over the place. They have championship ceremonies. They have parades going down, you know, city streets. They have the Academy Awards, the Emmys, the ESPYs. They're all in gowns and and jewel bejeweled and, and red carpets. What do you make of that? I mean, I mean the American people love it mostly. And it's interesting because these are people who are proud of their achievements and they're getting awards. And it's interesting because you don't have the equivalent of business. You don't have like a business Academy Awards. Like here's the best business of the year, or the best product of the year. But I think that goes back to David's point. It's the commercial versus the artistic or the commercial versus the non-commercial. But I, I think there's something to be learned by seeing overt. I mean, these people are overt to the point of almost, almost being over the top when you watch the Academy Awards. They're overtly prideful, maybe a little too publicly so. But it, the fact that it exists in some of these realms is interesting, but I think it only proves that there's this bias, as David pointed out. Yeah. I just a one one little footnote here. Uh, it's more of a question for Richard and and Clark and anyone else. Um, I've had a few experiences. I'm not in business myself, but I've had a few experiences of hearing businessmen talk to other people in business, and then they have no bones saying, you know, "Here's what I did. Here's, yeah. here's why it worked." 
privately. And obviously they're taking pride in it, but when they yeah. speak to anyone outside business, right. um, they're much more, you know, humble, I would say. Right. Uh, right. And self-effacing. Right. But I, I don't know how common it is, but I... Yeah, but even, and even when Ford started the Ford Foundation, why did he put his name on it? Or the Carnegie Foundation, or Carnegie Hall. I remember Donald Trump many years ago in the eight, in the 1980s, Donald Trump was in being interviewed and someone said, why do you put your name on buildings? And he said, because I built them. And <laughs> the questioner was like, what? what? And that answer is so straightforward. It's a unabashed pride. Of, I, and then, of course, fast forward to Obama and you didn't build that. Remember his famous phrase? He said to people, "You didn't build that. No one should. No one should be prideful in saying they built some product or some business. Why? Because ah, they went to public schools and they got to work on a subway and they walked on public streets. And this this nasty desire to undermine pride in people's achievement and uh, possibly uh, not to defend Donald Trump, but that could possibly be why, on the one hand, he's so universally loved and at the same time hated because he's so brazen about what he's achieved interesting i know he uh referenced being a rand fan in a past interview um so i wanted to just get into you know you address this a little bit but how much of this is semantics, you know, objectivist terms like selfishness and sacrifice, where we're going to these people and saying, you know, you're using these terms wrong, like pride and humility, and then getting bogged down in something where we're not that far apart in reality. Like you said, I mean, most religious people today, they, they want to do a good job at their work, and they're not really worried about the pride of sin. And they see it as more the hubris with yeah. the rappers flashing their money and things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good, Scott. Yeah. I think uh, there is a semantic issue here, um, and I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this session. Um, you know, we talked about a number of uh, terms that were important for us to try to understand. Pride, self-esteem, shame, guilt, um, humility. And, um, you know, Richard pointed out early on that um, pride can name be a, a term that names a feeling as well as a virtue, um, whereas we don't have really a term for the feeling of being honest. Um, and that's one, one of the ways in which, you know, language is, you know, and it, to understand, you can't just go by language or ordinary usage or dictionary definitions. You have to get to the concepts behind them. And words are used, um, to communicate, and there are many, many different features of communication beyond what we would consider the philosophical essential points. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea of, of pride as a name for a feeling, well, that's a, common, that's a common feeling. And so you need a name for it. And uh, it's not the only virtue that, um, you know, can be it, the only, it's not the only term for virtue that also can um, name a feeling. Gratitude is a feeling, but it's also a, uh, a virtue, I would say. Um, benevolence is a feeling. Um, it's also a virtue. And 
So it's it's it, language adapts itself to not not just to the underlying conceptual structure, um, which it doesn't do as well as it should, and but it's it also has to adapt to many other needs for communication, shortcuts, understanding, connotation, etc. Scott, another way to answer this is David. One of the th interesting things David and I talked about was mostly David's knowledge on Aristotle. We, we've quoted Aristotle as saying, "It's the uh, pride is the crown of the virtues," and he was really very good on this and the way he was good on self love and and other things and and Rand herself as an Aristotelian, and the revival in philosophy of what's called virtue ethics has given some space to people like Tara Smith an objectivist philosopher and others defending pride uh, properly. Um, but, it, but up to, uh, until then, the Kantian approach had been just do your duty. There are no set, there are no virtues, you know, to go through and say how to enhance your life or engage in human flourishing. That's too selfish. You just need to do your duty. But, but David, uh, not only to speak for you, David, but one of the things you said to me, which I think was very profound, you said, wonderful as Aristotle was, he, he did give us this idea that the right way to go on every virtue is some halfway point or median between two vices. And when he talks about pride, it was in the context of him writing about magnanimity, you know, the magnanimous man. He right. set it up. He set it up as, you know, well, you can be like he didn't. I don't know the words he used in Greek, but something you can be really vain or arrogant, or you can be totally self-abasing. Two vices to him, thankfully. And then he said, "Well, the, the intermediate point is pride." And uh, I leave it to you, David. It, there's something wrong there, right? We're saying the splitting the difference between two vices gives us a virtue. That's not really right. But it goes to Scott's point about that's what people are saying, right? They're saying, well, don't, let's not go to extremes. You don't need to be some arrogant yeah. Donald Trump pridester, but you also don't have to, you know, burn yourself in the public square and self-immolate. So let's split the difference. That's very common, isn't it, David? It's very common. Uh, I don't know how much Aristotle is responsible for it, but that idea of, of uh, the golden mean, virtue as a, as the mean between two uh, wrong extremes is very common. And yeah, yeah. I think it's completely wrong because both, you know, in to take his, his treatment of pride, um, you know, the contrast were the, um, um, between the vainglorious man who exaggerates his accomplishments and worth and yeah. the... Um, what was it called? The self-abasing guy. I can't remember what the actual norm, conventional translation is of the Greek, but yeah. um, mikropsukia, megalopsukia, yeah. and mikropsukia. Yeah. yeah right. Oh, thank you, Tom. Yeah. We have a we have an Aristotle scholar here. Yeah. All right. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, both of those are non-objective. Pride is the objective evaluation of yourself and objective commitment. A commitment to an objectively good goal. Um, neither of them, uh, pride is not, both the, both the, you know, the, sorry, Tom, give me those words again. Mikrotsukia, <laughs> yeah. that's the smallness of soul. The other one is greatness of soul. Mm. Okay, so the smallness of soul is, um, 
uh, a false view of oneself and the greatness of soul is a false view of oneself and both of them i th i think i have to go back and read aristotle again but um i think both of them involve comparison with other people and the yeah yeah uh, but pride doesn't involve that i'm not sure how clear aristotle was about that but i I think in calling it the crown. Can I interject and add add some a context to what you just said, David? Absolutely. Uh, what please. I read from Aristotle is that um, uh, his definition of pride has two components as well. One is that um, I I sense I sense myself as great. That's first component, and the second component is and. I am indeed great factually. So it is a kind of a congruence to reality that Aristotle is saying. And the greatness has to be of a certain quantity. Below that, it is just normal being sensible and so on. So, so that's a third component to, to, to the, the formula. Well, thank you. That's, that, is, that is absolutely great, Tom. It's, it, it's so um, precisely stated. And then it's bringing back you know, my ancient memory of uh, <laughs> McKean ethics. But um, yes, at the, and the point that, um, the third point here, that it has to be of a certain quantity or magnitude is not something that objectivism uh, would, would endorse. I mean, pride, all these virtues are virtues available to anyone who is not um, cognitively impaired, that they just involve recognizing a fact that is available to anyone to recognize and acting accordingly um, on whatever scale of accomplishment or achievement um, you're capable of. Um, so an important point, I think, about Rand uh, versus Aristotle in this case. Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, reiterate, David used the word commitment. This, this idea of the pride as a virtue of commitment to moral perfection we haven't talked about the concept of perfection but if it's not platonic if it's reality aristotelian randian based you can be perfect that sounds weird to people but uh, she also does discuss it that way the idea of commitment to moral perfection but epistemologically objectivity for rand is defined as commitment i love that idea commitment to you know volitional adherence to reality by the method of logic. So objectivity, epistemologically, it has that idea of commitment, volitional choice, plotting a path. It's not automatic. It takes work. It takes effort. You need to figure this out. You might do it wrong. If you do it wrong, you need to figure out how to do it right. It's See, the activeness of it is so active. It's not passive at all. It's really wonderful. And that's true of the pride, the virtue of pride as well. She has that that that's the idea of ambitious that when i read ambitious as an economist when i read ambitious in a moral philosopher i immediately think of a career but i've been on wall street i know what ambitious people are like they're vibrant they're vigorous they're active they're dynamic they're not stick in the mud they're not they're not going to sit in a job that bores the hell out of them they're getting headhunted by other people who want them if you apply that same kind of attitude, I'm going to build my career. I'm not just going to wait around for opportunities. I'm going to seek out opportunities. I might even leave this big company and start my own business. That you see that whole attitude. Can you imagine having that attitude toward whether you're morally right or not? 
Nobody yeah. thinks of it that way. Nobody thinks of it that way. I'm going to build my moral career, if you will. I'm going to make sure it adds up to something. I'm going to improve every year. I'm going to build my human capital and skill base. Nobody thinks of that. But, but again, Ayn Rand was big about using commercial metaphors for moral perfection. And just as you can perfect your skills in business, you can perfect them in moral uh, elements. And, and uh, so the moral ambitiousness angle is very good in Rand. Yeah, that would make another great show, uh, The Moral Perfection, because I do think that has become conflated with some objectivists to uh, not necessarily admitting when they're wrong. So um, making that differentiation would be great. But this has been a great topic. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for the color commentary as well. Uh, next Wednesday, we are going to have a current events with uh, Richard and Rob Trzinski. That's going to be uh, all across our you know, YouTube, Twitter. And then uh, next Thursday night at 7.30 p.m., we're going to be hosting a Fountainhead Book Club. Uh, part one with Peter Keating. That should be a lot of fun. And then uh, Friday, we'll be back here on Clubhouse with Richard for an Ask Me Anything. So we'll look forward to that next week. Thank you both for doing this. Thanks to everyone who participated or listened. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Scott, David, all of you. Thank you so much.